0: But we're in the book of Mark, uh, the gospel of Mark. We've, we've started the series. So take your Bible's turn there. Last week we left off with Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John. And uh, if you look at Mark 1, 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. One of the questions that's raised, you may not even have this question, but it's a, it's a big theological question that people wrestle with, so I'll throw it out there for us. One of the questions that, that's often raised is, um, if John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, why did Jesus need to get baptized? Right, and the, uh, the idea there is that since he was sinless, and there were no sins to repent of, why would Jesus go through the motions of getting baptized? The Expositor's Bible Commentary, the one that I use, gives this helpful insight, and I think they word it really well. They say this, Part of the plan was was the complete identification of Jesus at the very outset of his ministry with man and his sin. This he did by submitting to baptism. He had no sins of his own to confess. Rather, he was proclaiming his identity with human nature, weakness, and sin. I've said many times before, and here's another great instance just to highlight it. One of the things I love about Jesus is He never asks something from us that He hasn't first done Himself. Jesus humbly submits to baptism. Now, we wouldn't understand that, probably wouldn't even really think about it, but if you think about who He was and where He came from, to submit Himself to that process when He's actually the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is amazing submission. It's an incredible uh, picture of his humility. People often ask, and often rather challengingly, uh, why should I get baptized? And the very simple answer is because Jesus did. If you're a, a follower of Jesus, why wouldn't you get baptized? I want to put it this way. If it, was important, if it was that important for Him to identify with us, wouldn't it be equally as important for us to identify with Him? So I'll just throw that out there, let it perk, think about it, and come back to it. Alright, so moving on. We again come to a word that Mark loves. We, we've seen this word. The first time it was used, it says Jesus was baptized, and then John saw the heavens, and Mark uses the word torn open, rent is the word. Ripped. We'd think of, you know, like when you tear a piece of it, that's what it looked like. And then he saw immediately the Holy Spirit coming down and resting on Jesus like a dove. In verse 12, we're going to run into the second time the word immediately is used. And it says this in verses 12 and 13, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So we're going to ponder. I I was going to go through 10 verses this morning, and I got stuck on these two. So we're going to churn through these two together, and uh, we're going to dissect them and take a look at what they have to say. So would you join me in prayer before we do that? Father, thank you for this morning because uh, you know you and I had quite a dance this week. And I had to cover a lot of my tracks where I've made mistakes, and it was one of those weeks where I was like, oh my gosh, could you just get rid of me? It would be great. And uh, you just kept walking with me, and and actually this message comes out of the churn that I went through myself emotionally this week. So I'm assuming that that was intentional, and I'm assuming it wasn't just for me, that uh, it's a word for all of us. So. As I share, if that's true, then validate it. Be among us. Be, You are the most honored guest. Be among us. Speak, talk, uh, accentuate, illuminate, reveal things that we don't know. And we give that to you great hope. In your name, amen. All right. Well, as you read these two verses together, you quickly get the sense of movement, right? There's this push to it. It says, And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So that idea there of of driving is one of somebody, uh, we would think of the old cattle drives, right? Where they're calling out and you hear whips crack and they're pushing the cattle. It's that idea that he drove them out into the wilderness. And notice, who does the driving here? It says the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit drives, pushes Jesus out into the wilderness because that's the next step in the process. If you think about it, that's really kind of counterintuitive, right? You don't announce a big ministry, get baptized, and then disappear for a m- month. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus gets baptized and then He disappears. Can you imagine people wondering where He went? Right? Like, what happened? So, the Holy Spirit is the one leading Jesus into the wilderness, And he he drives them there with this special kind of force. Does anybody recognize this pattern? Recognize where this comes from? Let me show you. And as soon as I show you, you go, oh, I hadn't made that connection before. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. So here you have a typology going. As Moses did, so Jesus does. Moses came through the Red Sea and took the nation of Israel through the Red Sea and then he led them into the wilderness of Shur. Jesus comes down to the Jordan River, gets baptized in the Jordan River by John and then is driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And one of the questions was, why did he lead them into the desert? Why would God lead people into the desert? And the scriptural answer is is that He led them into the desert so that they could be alone. Not a lot going on in the desert. Not a lot of options. Not a lot of distractions. Not a lot of things. And so there's time to be still and to know that He's God. And God can speak to you in special ways. So it says God brought them out into the wilderness to care for them and to love them. It was also designed... To test them. Now we don't like that part, uh, but it is a big part of a wilderness experience is that we are set there so that God can test our hearts. And by the way, God makes no apology for testing us or putting us through testing circumstances or testing situations. It's If you read scripture, it's just part of the agenda for those of us who claim Jesus is Lord and claimed to be followers and believers. Part of following is being tested. But back to the main point. There would be one who was to come that would be in the like or the type of Moses. In Exodus 18, we see this prophetic verse where it says, The Lord your God, this is Moses talking, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from among your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. And so, this is the this, the prophetic place where God's saying He will bring another one, a one like Moses, one uh, who would lead his people again, and and he would be the Messiah or the Savior of his people. And so, we see this peril, kind of an archetype, if you will. It echoes between Moses and Jesus. It's a it's a uh, a picture, if you will. In the book of Hebrews, we find that Jesus would be a fulfillment of Moses' ministry. Moses was in the house. Jesus built the house. All right, so if you come back to these verses again, it says that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So Jesus is baptized, led through the waters, and then is led out into the wilderness. Notice the parallel here. How long was Israel in the desert? Forty years. How long was Jesus in the desert? Forty days. You go, well, why wasn't Jesus in the desert as long as Israel? Because Jesus was better at it than Israel. <laughs> All right? And thus, Jesus experiences his wilderness. Why was he driven into the wilderness? He was driven in the wilderness to be tempted and prepared for his ministry. Now, again, Jesus is modeling this for us, how you handle a wilderness experience. And again, he, what's fantastic about God is he never asks something from us that he doesn't first do himself. Uh, that's tremendously attractive to me because we kind of have this... Um, autocratic picture of God where God's in heaven He's just kind of snapping His fingers and you do this and you do that and you better get it done and move now and let's get it together and what? Hey, people, up, Right? And that's not the picture you get when you watch Jesus. You get an incredibly humble, you get an incredibly servant-oriented person who walks through the situation first so that he can identify with it. And uh, Hebrews speaks to this in a really clear way, in in chapter 2, verse 18. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, there's help in this experience. Hebrews 4 goes on and, and takes that and blows that idea up in an even more beautiful way. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. What I want to why I'm pulling these verse out trying to highlight is because the picture of God today is God is really detached. He's not out there. He doesn't talk. He doesn't speak. He's not next to you. You know, God's busy, it takes a lot of energy to run the universe and he doesn't have time for little people. And besides, there's a lot of little people. Uh, I was going last night with Kevin. We're going down to, uh, I wasn't, we're driving, but going down to a music thing in Seattle and the traffic, all white lights up I-5 one way, all taillights and forever, right? You've seen that picture before. And I'm like, I was driving by myself to go meet Kevin and I'm thinking, how many people is that? And where are all these people going? And what are their agendas? And do they know Jesus? I wonder how many of, you know, if if you had the ones who knew Jesus, just their taillights and headlights stayed on and other ones who didn't, went black. How many would go black? Right? And I was, I was processing that and I'm thinking, you know, that's just a little snippet and my mind was flaming out. Right? I, I was, I had hit the, like, wow, too big of an idea for me. That, that, that was just I-5. Think about our state. Think about the United States. Think about this world. Think about all the people and people. the thought is, you know, God can't possibly track 8 billion people. And if he's tracking them, he certainly can't understand what they're going through, what their private thoughts are, because it's it's rushed and it's hurried, and and he can't track all that, and and so he doesn't really, he can't really relate to what I'm going through, and so I guess if I'm in a desert experience, I I have to go through it myself. And these scriptures jump at us and say, no, stop, stop that kind of thinking. What we're doing when we do that is we take God. And we shrink them down to our size of a God. And our size of a God thinks like me, and our size of a God can't handle the headlights on a four-mile stretch of I-5. That's not who God is. There's a reason He's called God Almighty. He is vastly beyond anything that we can comprehend. It's not a problem for Him to know who you are and where you are. And so if you're in a wilderness experience, these scriptures are telling you that that he can identify. He's been there. He knows what it feels like. He can relate to what you're feeling. He's not remote. He's not disattached. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and here's the key phrase, what? Yet. Without sin. There's the difference. Okay? He did His well. We usually don't do ours well. He Himself, Jesus, has been through it and He has been tested in the wilderness. Right? Let's go back to our verses in Mark here. So, it says, And He was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And... The problem with reading this verse is when we read the word wilderness, we're sitting here on Sunday morning in our nice clothes, sitting in our nice chairs. Uh, It's very comfortable. We're very protected. And we're like, wilderness, oh yeah, I bet you that's scary, right? But if you've ever been in a wilderness, if you've ever been in a desert, you know, read these stories of people who drive out in the desert and like their tires blow or they run out of gas and all of a sudden they're 100 miles from nowhere. The desert suddenly becomes a terrifying place. It's not a nice place to be. It's harsh. It's barren. Uh, when you're in the wilderness, you suddenly become aware of deprivation. Very quickly, water suddenly becomes the major commodity. If you've got money in your pocket, that really doesn't mean nothing, but you'll trade it all for a glass of water. The heat during the day is like an oven. It suffocates you. The cold at night is like a freezer. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Mark says that he was with the wild animals. And and God speaks of this way about Sinai as well. Uh, Sinai is where Israel marched through. Look at what God says about Sinai. He says, He who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness. There's that, that word, terrifying. With its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. That was the picture of Sinai. It's one of the most fearsome deserts in the world ferocious to try and walk through. And it, it lists two things here, wild animals, uh, scorpions and snakes. Okay? And if you've ever been out in the desert, you got to watch out for that stuff, right? If you're in the desert, you shake your boots out. You don't just put them on because things crawl into your boot and they want to bite you, stab you, and kill you, right? And the snakes in the desert, they're not nice little cuddly things. They actually come after you, Okay? Because they see you and they go, ah, lunch, right? Trespasser, enemy, right? And so they're nasty. And if you've been out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, so it's not a pleasant place to be. You know, this, ju- let me give you one idea that really changed the game for you when you're thinking about this. This really changes the game when your only protection is sandals. think about that Jesus wore sandals into the wilderness among the wild animals among the fiery serpents and the scorpions. what is that what does that connect to? well you feel you feel unprotected right? He wasn't alone though it says he was with the wild animals and Here's the great end. And the angels were ministering to him. So the point is he was not without help. There was help. The angels were ministering to him. Uh, We have a problem with this simply because we can't see the spirit world. We can't see angels. We can't see the Holy Spirit. We can't tell what's really going on. So often because we bring life down to what's real is what's real on the level of my senses and because with my senses i can't perceive any of that stuff it's not real doesn't it's not a big thing it doesn't matter but it is a big thing because they ministered to jesus and what i take from this phrase is this if you're right now in a wilderness experience i don't know what the circumstances are i don't but if you're in a wilderness desert experience God knows how to protect and provide in the wilderness. He knows how to take care of you. He took care of Jesus. He'll take care of you. He, and here's the point we've got to get our head around. He actually is close to us in times of deprivation. Some of the times when we're in the wilderness is when we hear God the most. If you uh, think through your life, especially looking back, right? Because hindsight's twenty twenty. But looking back, when did God seem the closest? When did you experience Him the most? When was He the most real? Often, it's in times of trial or conflict that God's presence is so readily apparent. It's that time where you're stuck in the wilderness and you have no way to get out of it that he, you suddenly sense His presence coming alongside to minister to you. And people talk like this all the time. You know, it was an awful thing to go through, but the Lord was so close to me that they're almost sad they got out of the wilderness experience simply because the presence of the Lord was, was so real and so tangible. And the question is, are we willing in that, those kind of experiences to be still, and know that He's God. Mark's account here is brief. It's it's not near as specific as Matthew and Luke's. Both Matthew and Luke have the trifold temptation of Jesus by Satan, where He's tempted three different times. And both of their accounts have Satan taking Jesus up to a high mountain or a high place um, for Him to look down. Both Matthew and Luke have Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights without bread or water. Now there's another side of it. Think about going 40 days without food or water. If we said, hey, we're having the family meal after service they would pull up the tables, there's nothing on them, and we said, ha, just kidding. You'd all be going, well, heck, what's your business meeting. We're going to get lunch, right? We've got to eat. We're starving. That's just one meal. Can you imagine going a whole day? Can you imagine going 10 days? Can you imagine going 40 like, this is a supernatural event here that we're, that we're looking at. This is also an obvious connection with Moses on Mount Sinai. He goes up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, and it says that he didn't eat or drink, right? And so again, Moses is an archetype or a, a picture of the Jesus who was to come. I looked it up. There's not a lot of suggestions where this wilderness specifically is, Uh, But the key point is that it's isolated. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't have cell reception. All right? He didn't have Facebook to keep him when he was bored in the wilderness. He didn't have the Internet. He didn't have 911. He was out there by himself with his thoughts. And it was him and God. So Jesus knows what it's like to be out there by yourself, which leads us to the big question today. All right, so I did all of that. All right, so if you kind of tracked with that, great. But if you weren't tracking it at all, here's the place to key, to tune in. All right, I set up all of that for this this these couple of questions this morning. Um, here's the question: Have you ever had a wilderness experience? And when you did. How did you react during it? Have you ever felt alone or abandoned? Have you ever felt vulnerable? Has life become unpredictable or dangerous? Have you ever felt cut off or isolated? And then maybe the bigger question that comes out of that is this one. Not so much have you ever had a desert experience, but have you reconciled the fact that it may have been God who led you into that desert experience? Have you ever thought about it It might have been the sovereignty of God that led you to that experience? And that it was intentional, one, to test, but two, to be alone with you. Think about it. He led Israel into the desert. This morning we see he drove Jesus into the desert. Are we willing to let him lead us into the desert? And maybe an even more important question comes off of those two. Is this one. What's the purpose of the desert experience? What's it designed for? What's it supposed to accomplish And God says that it's designed so that He can stay close to us. If you look at this scripture found in Deuteronomy here, uh, chapter 32, it says, He, God, found Him, Israel, in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. How do you like that description? A howling waste. Waste that just dry, wind-blowing, sand everywhere. you got sand in your eyes and sand in your mouth and sand in your nose and sand in your clothes and sand in your soul. It's a howling waste of a wilderness. And it says he encircled them and he cared for them. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Apple of his eye is a very unique affection term. It means for one that you hold in highest esteem. Often it's said of grandparents to to grandkids that they are the apple of their eye, right? And when you see how grandparents look at their grandkids, you get where that picture comes from because the the grandchild is just this absolute delight to them. Like, whoa, there's my grandson, there's my granddaughter. Hey, come sit here on Papa's lap. They're the apple of his eye. Well, in the howling waste of this wilderness, God's saying that we are the apple of his eye, that we're not alone, we're not abandoned, we're not forsaken. He's got his eye on us in a special, special way. It says, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him, and no foreign god was with him. This is a fantastic picture. Uh, You ever seen bald eagles, right? Up close, impressive birds, almost eight foot wingspan. And they, if you ever had one just come right over you, like, whoa, right? And what a mother eagle does is as the baby eaglets are in the nest and they're up there and eagles put their nests high, way up on cliffs, way up on stuff, right? And so when they get to a certain age and, and they're ready, the mother starts to flutter the nest and one of the eaglets eventually gets pushed to the end of the of the nest and they fall off the edge. And baby eaglet has no clue what this is about. It's not fun and not a happy camper and it's flopping and fluttering and fluttering like this and it's sure it's going to die and mother comes, sweeps down, sweeps right under it, catches her, catches the baby eaglet on its back and then swoops and guess where the mother takes the baby eaglet? Right back to the nest. What does the mother do? Flutters the nest again. What happens to baby eaglet? Pushed out, falls and tumbling and rolling through the air, trying to flap its wings. Mother comes, whoosh. And this goes on and on for a period of time. Whoosh, wah, whoosh right? Till all of a sudden, one time, what happens? The baby eaglet figures it out and the baby eaglet starts flying. Right? It was the whole purpose of the intention of, of the project was that the mother eagle could get the baby eagle to learn how to fly. Now, did the baby eagle like the process? No. Not at all. If you ever watch videos of it, they're freaked out. Okay? They're clawing and scratching to stay in that nest for all they're worth. They like the nest. The nest is safe. The nest is warm. That's where food comes to. We're not moving out. We're camping here. No for rent sign. Okay? We're staying. And... The mom knows, no, you've got to get out. And so she deliberately disrupts the nest to such a point that they fall out and they have to learn how to fly. And God's using the same picture of Israel in the desert. It says, like an eagle, now I'll read this, that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young. Notice that's a caring term. It's intentional flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him, no foreign god was with him. That's the purpose of a wilderness experience, that God can bear us up, catching us on his pinions. Now, is this how Israel saw it? Nope, right? We know from the stories that... uh, One here I'll pull. It says they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. The wilderness of sin is a destitute place which is between Elam and Sinai. Now get this part. On the 15th day of the second month. So the 15th day of the second month. 30 days in a month. So two and a half months. They've been in the desert two and a half months. Okay, 75 days ish And what do we find? How are they responding? It says And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Notice here the context is the wilderness, their situation. Transfer that to your situation and your wilderness. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by, oh, the pots with meat in them. Mmm. And bread. Oh. And we ate to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They are not happy campers, right? And we know this. They're not really mad at Moses and Aaron. Who are they really mad at? They're mad at God. This is your idea of the promised land? This is your idea of getting us out of slavery? Is a worse situation? More destitute than the one we're even in? Are you kidding me? This is your plan for our life? For our nation? We don't think so. We don't like it. Get us out of this Blankety-blank desert. Come on, that was pretty good. I could have used words there. Right? It does not sound like they are happy campers, right? I want to contrast this with this verse. In Psalm 717, King David is singing this verse. And he says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due His righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. Right, now, just just go back a second here. Look at this one. Look at the tone. Look at what's going on. Is the, Are they grateful? No, they're mad. God, you are evil. You are wicked. They're attributing evil motives to God's heart. You are wicked and you are evil for having brought me to this place. And unless you get me out, I will not serve you. How dare you treat me this way? That's what you're getting. Look at King David. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Now, context is everything. We know the context of the desert. What's the context of Psalm 17? Well, the context of Psalm 17 is this. David is terrified because his enemies are so powerful, he's afraid he's going to get ripped limb from limb. And in the midst of that desert experience, he is singing. You realize, right, that the Psalms are a hymn book. We, we, we read them, we speak them out, but they're, they're a hymn book. Many of the modern hymns that we have come out of the Psalms, but the Psalms themselves were songs. They were played, they were sung, and they were meant to be sung uh, to keep the people focused on God. What did David know? It's easy to get resentful. It's easy to get bitter. David wrestled with that himself. So what did he do? He wrote songs to remind him to sing in the wilderness. You know, David was uh, in the wilderness a lot. Some of the most, as a matter of fact, the most amazing stories in Scripture are the ones of where somebody's in terrible bondage or isolation, and yet they're singing. They're singing. Uh, David is famous for this. He spent a ton of time in the wilderness or the desert running from Saul, uh, who was trying to kill him, or running from his son Absalom, who was trying to kill him, or from his enemies, the Philistines who were trying to kill him. And so he often wrote Psalms uh, from, if you read the Psalms, from a stronghold or in the desert or in a cave or in a waste place. And he writes these incredible songs of praise to God. The Psalms, again, are just are, are filled with verses like this. You can't hardly go anywhere without running into verses like this. And he's not the only one. Think of Joseph in the prison, right? Joseph had a, a good attitude in his wilderness, his prison. Um, Job is 40 chapters of wilderness, right? Think of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. They are Roman citizens. They get arrested falsely. They get beaten without any proper uh, examination. They get thrown in jail. And it says at midnight they were what? Singing hymns to God. Singing hymns. Okay, so when the Romans beat you, this wasn't patty cake. Okay, this wasn't, well, we'll be nice because we might hurt your feelings. They didn't give a rip about your feelings. Matter of fact, they hope. they heard him, okay? Their thing was to pummel you into absolute submission that you would never even think about it or let it cross your mind that you would resist their authority again. These guys were beaten to a pulp and at midnight they're in the jail singing. And an earthquake happens and the gate opens and the jailer thinks everybody's escaped so he's going to take his own life. And Paul says, no, no, it's all good. It's okay. We're, we're all still here. And you realize that the jailer and his whole family come to Christ's through that whole episode, why did they come to Christ? Is it normal for people to sing in prison? It's not, is it? And so I I want to end with this question this morning. As I went through my week, this was the question that came to me, and I'm sure it will relate to you. But in your wilderness, do we curse? Or do we sing? You know, under pressure, we tend to go back to what we learned. And that's why we can be very, very Christian when things are good and very, very nasty when things are bad. Because... We learn crisis from our parents and they learn crisis from their parents and they learn crisis from their parents. There's a generational train coming down the tracks. Is that train usually uh, more uh, the scratch in the record, right? Is that trail more for singing most of the time or is it more for cursing? It's more for cursing, isn't it? Jesus went into the desert. Do you know Jesus sang? Right? Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? They sang a few hymns and then they went out. Jesus probably was singing. And being the Jewish boy that he was and being in the as he was, what do you think he was singing? He was singing the Psalms. He was singing the very Psalms that David wrote way before him. Why? Because he knew the pressure and the temptation, matter of fact, uh, the temptation for him to curse God. And so Jesus sang. What do we do in our wilderness experience? Do we curse? Or do we sing? I want you to take that point with you this week. Spend some time with the Lord. Unpack that a little bit. There's some depth to it there's a lot of depth with it me this week there's probably a lot of depth with you i think we can learn from this so join me in prayer would you father i didn't like what i went through this week but i sure like what you brought out of it and the idea of learning to sing in my wilderness instead of curse in my wilderness is a powerful powerful thought to not let resentment or bitterness grab me, to not turn on you, to accuse you, to uh, ascribe to you motives of evil. Our world is filled with that right now. Lord, and, and somebody who sings in their wilderness or in their prison is radically different from the rest of the culture. That's not normal. It's not how we expect it to go. And it stands out. Lord, may we be a group of people who sing in our wilderness. Teach us how to do that. We know from this two verses we covered this morning, you were in the wilderness 40 days. You know how to do it. Give us that ability to sing to you in our wilderness. And we ask for this in your name. Amen.